0: Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. and My guest
1: today is Dr. Hibis Kassel, Senior Researcher at the Institute of African Alternatives in Cape Town in South Africa. She presented the paper during a virtual meeting on Ethiopia. Organized by the African Institute of South Africa and the Human Rights Council in February. Uh, Dr. Kasser, in your paper, you mentioned ethno-nationalism in Ethiopia. Uh, can you explain a bit on that, please?
2: Yes. Um, so th- this has, uh, this ideological perspective or tradition has a very long history in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Historically speaking, it's actually not, uh, depending on which range of history you're using, but uh, it has a very deep roots in the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front. Its roots are also, one can argue, influenced by a particular uh, version of Stalinist socialism, so thinking mm. about uh, the ways in which certain national groups, and that in itself also takes uh, perspective also from the Lenin. Uh, so one can uh, one of the one of the classic texts on this was written by uh, Walla Lenin, uh, mm. who um, in 1969 a student act, a student activist. Uh, which in the period, uh, was a very, it was a revolutionary period in which, uh, pe- the young people, the students, the intellectuals, uh, the intelligentsia was, were largely questioning, uh, the, um, the, the monarchy that had been in existence, uh, for about, uh, for thousands of years, uh, that yes. has deep roots, uh, a lot of contestation around the 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 kind of oppression that had been in existence in the monarchy. And as they were also trying to kind of, uh, of course, a revolution to rapture that system and to give birth to, uh, if you will, uh, a republic. And in the process of that, there was a tradition that believed that an ethno-nationalist approach is what will uh, basically deal with the central contradiction of the empire, which had to deal with... Uh, Ethnic groups basically being the building blocks of the empire. Problem is that it was, it was, it was basically taking a model or an approach that was applicable in Russia and imposing it in an African context where there are further questions that needed to be asked. So there are many debates within the Tiberian People's Liberation Front. And the, 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 around what the vision for the new Ethiopia should be and understanding that the Tigrayans as an ethnic group or as a, a language group had been, uh, basically, um, since the, 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 the Battle of Adwa and the aftermath of that. And the, basically, uh, Emperor Menelik at the time, uh, was basically consolidating his power also led to a gradual process where Tigrayans' elite began to lose their central, if you will, their hold or their ability to control the center of the, the this uh, indigenous African state. So yes. it's part of that debate that the roots of this ethno-nationalism is, but it's not only the TPLF, the Oromo Liberation Front also. There are several yes. groups that mobilized against uh, Mangustu's uh, Socialist government in the nineteen seventies that uh, basically represents that tendency.
1: Yeah, I was even about to ask about the Mengistu period. I mean, what until then, during the after the overthrow of Emperor Haile I mean, did Mengistu try to uh, the regime did it, did it try to uh, address this this issue of ethno nationalism?
2: Well, if it addressed it, the, the the challenge at that period is that it was an authoritarian. Uh, uh, military government uh, that in its birth, its in its foundation also was a product of basically smashing the intelligentsia at the time who were uh, Marxist, Leninist, young uh, scholars and uh, in, cut across the uh, wide sections of society. Teachers were organized across the country in particular, organizations uh, at the time referred to as EHPA. There was a smaller group referred to as Mason, and uh, these groups had basically different strategies to deal with the military government. So, what the military government did at the time was smashing these groups that largely had a nationalist vision. So, at that time, there was mm-hmm. a consensus. Yes. Yes in society around a nationalist vision. But you still had these different groups that debated what the new society is supposed to be. So as an authoritarian government that effectively smashed the opposition uh, to it, uh, there were different mobilizations across the country. And uh, what was significant in the ranks of the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front at that stage was that they were also thinking through these questions. There were no clear-cut responses. But the uh, ethno-nationalist tradition itself was still based within that uh within the structure of the TPLF and over time they won the debates and that long term consequences for Ethiopia's future trajectory
1: Yeah but the TPLF the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front was at the forefront really of the uh the transition period that uh mm-hmm. after the overthrow of the Derg and I think you said in your paper in Cape Town that uh, they established an ethno-nationalist-driven constitution, I mean, the uh, TPLF. Uh, Is that the reason why this new regime of President Abiy decided to move into Tigray to to at least change the whole concept of this ethno-nationalist constitution that was established under the auspices of the TPLF?
2: So... um... There there, 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 there are two aspects to this. In the first phase in 1991, the nature of the transition was a very fraught process. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that, uh, in the, those who were present in that period, were, would recognize that the, there had been a process of negotiation with the then government of, uh, the, the dark, And, uh, there, were, there were those, the United States played a key role in this. Now, the TPLF had the, the, this version, this ethno-nationalist-based uh, uh, TPLF version of TPLF had backing of the United States. And mm-hmm. they played a key role in ensuring that the TPLF did come at the forefront and be able to basically establish itself as the dominant force uh, through the negotiation period that the U.S. was playing a key role in. Uh, Ambassador Herman Cohen uh, in particular played a, an important role in that process and it's well known that uh, while an agreement with the DERG had been made for a truce uh, without a single shot being fired, TPLF could literally just march in into Addis Ababa, as was put by a BBC report at the time like an invading army uh, and yes. therefore entering into the capital and at the time the people were very vocal that they were against the DERG regime but they were not for this kind of uh, uh, if you will, uh, entry of a military force. They wanted a democratic society to be born and not have this yes. sense of outsiders coming in to dominate the process. So that was the nature of the transition. But there's a two parts yes. of this question. The second part is what happens in Tigray. We wouldn't be able to understand what happened in Tigray uh, without understanding what the last 27 years have been. Uh, for Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this TPLF dominates that coalition had basically set up a very, uh, uh, an authoritarian regime still. So there's consistency throughout Ethiopia's history from the empire to date, we've had authoritarian regimes in place. Mm -hmm. And so now with the TPLF um, losing its control of the center, it's recreated this condition that they uh were drawing on their long history also of the empire and their own critiques of that uh, and uh, for them losing the power at the center is what they read it as and as abiy coming in from the oromo uh, people's uh, yes. democratic party then would then uh, basically be setting himself up as a counterpower what he's done is that he's moved on to set up the to to to, to basically um, dissolve the previous co- coalition that was based on ethnicities and forming the Prosperity Party. And yes, according well, to their rhetoric, it's not based yeah. on ethnicity. And yeah. then the TPLF itself refuses to be part of that and then yeah. basically returns to Tigray and uh, says that they are not going to have a part with this. Uh, but at the same time, separating themselves from the government and also creating their own autonomy if you will, reasserting that and even holding elections without, uh, even when there's been a decision by the federal government to postpone elections, which will now be held later this year. So what TPLF actually did and what triggered the war was an attack on November 4th, which was preemptive, offensive uh, attack by the TPLF, which they've described as a lightning strike in which they slaughtered, uh, the, the Ethiopian uh, defense forces who were engaged in collaborative work with them. So their own colleagues yeah. literally yeah. slipped in in the dead of night and slaughtered them. Generals yeah. were slaughtered. Ordinary soldiers were slaughtered. They took in prisoners and slowly killed them. They ran over them with vehicles. They, they tortured people to death. So when yeah, we had all of this scale of assault, it is an attack yeah. on the federal government. So it is a declaration of war. In any society, it would be regarded as a de- declaration of war, well, which is well, what the European government responded to.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the point. But how come uh, the TPLF or Integri was allowed to have its own independent army in, in, in a unified state? I mean, that's, that's the problem. Why, why would the TPLF have its own independent army that would then attack the national army?
2: Yes, that's an important question. But everything that we're seeing today is the legacy of what the TPLF had itself set up. So all Mm -hmm. the provinces in Ethiopia, all the regions in Ethiopia have their own standing armies. There are ethnic militias across Mm -hmm. the country. Uh, So all of these are part of what the uh, TPLF set up. And uh, as in its way, uh, in principle, Was supposed to preserve the autonomy of the different groups, and they have the right to secede, just as they did in the Soviet Union. You have the right to secede, but actually, seceding is more difficult, which is what the TPLF maintained.
1: Was it was it constitutional what you explained? Yes,
2: it is. it is whether. this is oh. part of it. This is the nature of it, and that's why we're saying that it's the ethno-nationalist constitution that is the heart of the problem. That we need uh, mm-hmm. to be able to, to 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 basically have a referendum on this and to remove this element and to reform the society. But in in this way, and uh, the challenge that we're faced with right now, of course, uh, is that you'd have to have democratic elections, and for the Prosperity Party. Uh, legitimizing itself in this moment becomes a basis for them to then move forward to make other changes. We don't know what that future is going to really look like. We can't make assumptions, but we can only move with the evidence that's put before us. So the elections becomes a key point. But the fears that people have, which are right uh, to have, is that the elections could also be a source for further conflict. And we're very concerned about that, given that there has been widespread genocide that has been unleashed on different ethnic groups. Uh, yes. You have uh, people uh, who are Mahara speaking. We know the the, the, the genocide that occurred in Mykadra, about 700 people slaughtered overnight. Uh, you have a situation also in uh, Walaga. We have Ben Shangul Gumuz Matakal. There are there, several groups in the in the Gurage also have their own, uh, there have been attacks on uh, groups that uh, within the same ethnic group even that have uh, some differences, but it all relates to also relationships to land and livelihoods. So at the heart of this is that there are different levels of uh, conflicts, if you will, that have opened up at the party level, but also at the local level where because the, the your ethnicity literally determines your right to exist in a particular space, if you're considered a migrant, whether you have had or you, you even have lived there for generations, but simply because uh, you come from a different ethnic group and because of the way the, the ethno-nationalist constitution is set up, literally mm-hmm. all the provinces are laid out on the basis of specific ethnicities having certain rights. But in the yes. Amhara region, Because the TPLF assumed that the Amhara have had this historical dominance, elitism, benefit from the uh, empire, because they've taken this very simple analysis of ethnicity, so they don't have a complex way of reading ethnicities. So they just Mm -hmm. assume that you are privileged as an Amhara, uh, that that ethnic group doesn't necessarily have all the rights within their own territories. So there are certain differences that are wedded into the constitution.
0: Yeah, could you you please then
2: be addressed?
1: Could you please then explain the involvement of the Eritreans in Uh Tigray?
2: So that's an extremely important chapter of this history. Because for for observers, when one considers how long Eritrea has had uh, a relationship uh, with the TPLF uh, in the struggle in the bush, these were comrades at arms who had a Uh common in overthrowing the Mengistu uh, regime in the Dirk. Yeah. And so, when yes. that historical moment then it became a reality, and the TPLF section that was uh, focused on an ethno nationalist vision for Ethiopia uh, had basically asserted itself and was pursuing that as an end, there wasn't agreement from Eritrea. So, you had Afrowerki, especially uh looking i mean whatever flaws or faults that one may find and there are a lot of questions to be raised about Eritrea yes. mm-hmm. but importantly also he was able to see that this was a dangerous path you cannot build a society on the basis of dividing people on the basis of ethnicity so he was against mm. that position and so while winning the sovereignty for Eritrea Uh, at the same time, he disagreed strongly with the TPLF on that. And for them, that's a direct rejection of their whole vision and conception of how they were going to build their domination. Because you see, TPLF with the Tigrayan, uh, basically ethnic group believed that by having control of the center, they could build their own domination, which they positioned as uh, opposed to Amhara domination, for which once they were removed from power, the chips, mo- the if you will, the the players on the chessboard shifted, and you had a, a, a realization that the groups that were all positioned uh, talking about Oromo oppression, uh, about uh, the the we you know the protests that took place in Addis uh, Ababa that were triggered by land yeah. grabbing and so on, all of those some of those sections of those groups were able to now go on the side of the TPLF. So that's the complex situation we are sitting with. That those who had previously... So that's what what Hachalu Hundisa was also raising as a concern. That he realized that uh, those who had been talking about the Roma liberation were now defending the TPLF. And some would argue that it's because Hachalu Hundisa, the uh, uh, icon and um, uh, musician, whose death then led to a series of also uh, instabilities in Ethiopia and widespread protests, himself became a target because he was critical of everyone, including the Oromo uh, liberation movement itself.
1: Yes, with with the war which started on November 4, do you see any contradictions between Prime Minister B getting a a Nobel Peace Prize and then starting a war in which uh, Ethiopian forces have been accused of war crimes
2: yes so that's a very uh, it's an interesting question because you see what what is the responsibility of african leaders what is the responsibility of uh, heads of state ultimately mm-hmm. their first response always has to be their priority has to be uh, to defend the sovereignty of their their own countries mm-hmm. and their priorities for africa africa first so if we believe this as being a, a guiding principle we must also uh, understand that uh, in as much as one may receive international accolades, uh, ultimately, you should be held accountable to your own people. And in that yes. sense, when those killings on November 4th happened, and you had the slaughter and you had the reports slowly coming in, and we had the admission from the TPLF spokesperson himself on television saying it was a lightning strike, we felt we were on attack, and so we felt we had to take an action uh, the night before they launched their assault on the the, mm-hmm. the the military. They actually received uh funds from the central government. So the central government yes. in in Addis Ababa had not expected so there's a key argument they had not expected an attack from them. What had been happening is that they'd been sending uh emissaries persons or uh, elders to engage with them, to negotiate. There have been two years of negotiations. Mm -hmm. So those were ongoing processes. But when the attacks and slaughter happened, remember that when we engage with Abi, he also has a history in the army and he understands what uh, an attack on a military force of that kind, the slaughter of that, because it's slaughter. They were left to rot naked. They didn't have their dignity. And as Africans, we know how dignity is so important to us, even in death. We expect that the bodies of the people will be treated uh, properly. They were left to be eaten by wild animals. So it's mm-hmm. the sort of conduct that was uh, that was horrified the society as a whole and this cannot be allowed to be permitted. But what have we seen in the aftermath of that? We know that war, there's no easy, war itself is not, a, there's no way you can enter into a war and be a winner, so to speak. And I think i find it unfortunate when we have to be making these arguments because then it sounds like we are defending abi but uh, it's like the situation is such that one just has to make these points uh, clearly um when the troops when when the troops were sent out into war we knew that uh, it was going to be a serious challenge in terms of accountability a serious yeah. challenge in terms of discipline uh, so this is what they are faced with in this current moment. And there have been very grievous reports about, uh, rape, uh, and looting. And, uh, we also know about the massacres that have been ongoing. But, those, by whom
1: Committed that by. is the
2: question. That is the question. So, for instance, what we appreciate, what I, at least I appreciate is that the human rights, um, the, 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 the women's ministry, the attorney general yeah. and the human uh, human rights commission in ethiopia have been conducting investigations and they've also opened up now to the united nations uh, human rights commission uh, so they, they 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 are sending uh, the, the 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 to gather evidence but the problem now is to be able to identify exactly who the perpetrators are and it's going to take mm-hmm. a lot of work and a lot of yes. uh, if you will coordination participation uh, political backing for all of these groups to be able to pull that uh, together. But we must remember that the challenge that they are faced with on the ground, it's not just the Eritrean and Ethiopian troops and Tigrayan troops that need to be held, uh, that need to be, that, sorry, not Tigrayan troops, TPLF troops or TPLF yes. fighters. So, um, it's not these forces only that were at play prior to the, the 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 entry of the eprdf into Magalli, Uh there had also been a mass release of criminals from prison so um and these people had different profiles, of course, different kinds of crimes that they've committed before. We've seen Egypt doing a similar thing. Mubarak did the same thing during the yes. revolution to cause chaos. They unleashed, uh, uh, they opened their prisons and, and just uh, let out a lot of, uh, just um, uh, let out a significant number of uh, uh, people who had been convicted of crimes of various kinds. Mm-hmm. So right. when we are seeing all these terrible things happening. Uh, we cannot assume that it's only coming from that element, and we need to be able to re-establish that kind of uh, accountability processes, investigations, and the Ethiopian government uh, overall has a relatively, I think, a good track record of being able to be effective monitoring people, tracking people. So it's about yeah. it's, uh, it's part of its uh, um, the ways in which that it's uh, maintained a surveillance architecture. Uh, to be able to control the society so reestablish that in this context but with the purpose of protecting human rights and especially of women who've been violated then becomes a different instrument that the state can then transform yeah. it because the recent statement that was issued by the prime minister 's office was basically talking about the current meeting that they had uh, with uh, Isaias yes. Afrowa between Prime Minister Abi and Isaias Afro and in that meeting, they also talked about the need to build trust between people and mm-hmm. uh, we agree that people to people trust needs to be rebuilt and uh, there's a lot of hurt and pain uh, that has uh, been created because of the the the, the, the split between. Uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea conf- and the tension that always existed around the TPLF but especially around the conduct of the war but holding people accountable where they are found yes. to be perpetrators becomes a key way that you can rebuild that trust because every Eritrean troop cannot yes. be said to be a criminal neither can it be assumed of the TPLF troops neither it can be assumed yes. of Ethiopian uh, uh, defense forces But finding those who are perpetrators and holding them to account becomes a way to do that. Also, there's a need to ensure that the women who have been victims are receiving medical care and psychosocial care. There's a lot of trauma that they're dealing with and also to be reintegrated into their communities. So that's also a level of support that the state has to carry as a matter of responsibility and ensuring that people can once again heal and reclaim their mm. dignity, because that is what has been ripped away from them. Uh, okay. And we know that uh, in the attacks, there was references to trying to uh, basically cleanse the bloodline and erase certain groups. But we know that the genocides that have been unfolding, not just currently, but other attacks, like as far back as a decade ago, there's always been this persistent uh, desire to cleanse bloodlines, the ANWAC, uh, genocide for instance has a direct reference to these kinds of things also uh, for over a decade ago and when these assaults took place when these uh, brutal attacks took place it came under TPLF's regime at the time and TPLF itself was directly found to have uh, basically led those assaults and it's linked right. Yes. Right. to the violent nature of ethno-nationalism which is the argument I was right. making in that paper
0: yes. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Uh, my guest
1: today is Dr. Hibis Kasser, Senior Researcher at the Institute for African Alternatives in Cape Town in South Africa. She presented the paper during a virtual meeting on Ethiopia organized by the African Institute of South Africa and the Human Rights Research Council in February. Uh, Dr. Kassa but I mean, Ethiopia unlike most African countries, was never colonized. And we know that colonialism actually fomented ethnicity. Divisions among tribes were more or less divided and rule. So Ethiopia never had that problem. How come after its thousand years of of history, could not have overcome the issue of uh, ethnicity?
2: Thank you so much for that question. It's so important to reflect in this uh, historical juncture that we're in, what this means. I think there are two arguments around this. One is that um, uh, Ethiopia may not have been colonized by the West, but there was an internal form of colonialism that existed linked to the empire. Now, that line of argumentation, uh, I, would, I personally find it to be a case of making a false equivalency of looking at the nature of Western forms of colonialism and just assuming that there was a process of othering that is the same as found elsewhere. We had similar uh, processes, uh, ideological uh, contestations over apartheid, and there was a simplest way in which uh, some would argue that uh, TPLF had imposed a kind of apartheid uh, on the basis of ethnicity. But the way we use concepts, we have to be very careful. Because apartheid in one context in South Africa means something. Apartheid in Palestine means something. What does apartheid in Ethiopia mean? What are the categories? These may seem like very pedantic kind of intellectual exercises, but they have long-term implications. Because when mm-hmm. one assumes that the colonialism as it exists, uh, as, as it was supposed to have existed in the, the, the empire, especially in the period of uh, Minelik's rule, if one wants to be able to impose that concept, one also needs to do uh, an exercise that is similar to the violence of what the rapists do when they say that they're trying to cleanse the bloodline. Because what you do conceptually is that you literally have to create these pure ethnic categories. You have to believe that Menelik does not have an Oromo mother. You have to believe that he has some vested interest that is linked to the Maharana. You have to believe that he doesn't come from the South. You have to ignore that Empress Taitu uh, has uh, is, is, uh, has a Tigrayan, uh, if you will, uh, family. That she yes. also is a Muslim. Like she has that Muslim uh, family association. Mm-hmm. You have to ignore all these complexities and simplify history. So what we lose in an effort to not to have a nuanced understanding of our history and our roots and to just copy and paste essentially from other contexts, just as TPLF did, looking at what was found to be appropriate in the Soviet okay. Union and assuming it is appropriate in our context is such that it leads to something that's a violent kind of uh, process uh, in which you can create these pure categories and then, thereby influences an idea that justifies the kinds of things we're seeing today. It's 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 it's, it's a self fulfilling prophecy where people are seeking to erase certain groups from certain areas because you assume that they have no right to land, they have no right to livelihood. So it's extremely dangerous. How did we arrive mm-hmm. at this point? Because I think that ideologically, the battle was lost when the ethno nationalist uh, rigid kind of argumentation was won in TPLF, Ethiopian lost uh, yeah. historically. And I think that um the groups that for instance the, the the if you will the tendencies within TPLF that rather would ask the question what is the place of tigrayans within a democratic and free in ethiopia what is the vision of a free and equitable society for all in which Tigrans also have a place and they are like trying to question and debate that the more nuanced or moderate elements uh the the, the fact that they lost their argument within tplf was the great loss of yes. ethiopia And the ways in which that it's also been appropriated in other groups, other um, ethno-nationalist formations that also seek to make this, who build their argument from a similar place, then have allies that. And for all of that, the roots actually is colonial. So uh, an argument that Professor Mamomochi, for instance, would make is that he draws... Uh, uh, an understanding of how um, the, the the Italians had uh, certain categories that they had laid out uh, to yeah. analyze the Ethiopian situation or to be able to do their mapping of who the key actors are and also to organize the society on the basis of that. And they used ethnicity. So yeah. we've integrated that. We've absorbed that. And with these, if I will, misguided, unhelpful uh, if you will, analysis of our society for our own self-diagnosis. So it, it's, uh, it's as if to say that one did not have to be colonized in the usual way, but yes. uh, we, we were ultimately, we lost, uh, if you will, the battle for our sovereignty when these ideological and political debates were lost. That's, that's what I would
1: Yes, you, you, you did say in your paper that, uh, what's happening now in Ethiopia, uh, is, uh, an example of problems faced with forging the social contract in Africa. Uh, can you give examples of, uh, countries that have, well, African countries that have similar problems, apart from the, uh, basic ethnic rivalry? Because I think the one, the ethno, nationalism in, in, in Ethiopia I think is very deep-seated which I don't think we have in other African countries
2: um, When we think about it in other African countries and we think of the social contract and the ways in which that has been um, I mean one would have to historicize it because the immediate post-independence period was one that we like yeah. to idolize because in that moment yes. there was uh, an assertion of sovereignty, we had, uh, leaders like Kwame Nkrumah, uh, we had, uh, Julius Nyerere, who embodied, uh, an attempt to basically, uh, have, to set up African states that were able to at least, uh, have their own internally generated vision. Of what could be the, the way forward, uh, for their societies as a whole. But we know that that period went through its own crisis. And, uh, we know that the, the regimes, uh, Nkrumah's regime was overthrown, but we know that they also had, uh, economic crises of their own, uh, the import substitution industries, all these attempts of uh, having some degree of building, uh, if you will, economies and societies that are able to uh, diversify. You know, it sounds like hard economic analysis, but all of this was attempts to build sovereignty and to be in a position to also not just dictate uh, the terms or conditions of our own people's uh, lives, but even uh, international uh, politics. You know, Nkrumah played an important role in the Congo crisis, for yes. instance. And uh, in that sense, there's a certain kind of leadership that was provided uh, in the international realm. And uh, for for us um, now, I think that we're dealing with different kinds of states and a different kind of moment. The neoliberal onslaught on uh, societies as a whole, but also the the kinds of policies that the states themselves have implemented have eroded the social contract. Uh, they've uh, so it's, it, whether it's a question of access to social social services, uh, or it's a question about whether they're regulating the mineral sector uh, effectively, all those things have been eroded due to the liberalisation agenda, and so. When we come to the current moment, what we have is a loss of that African vision and that African uh, kind of uh, approach to resolving, uh, not just resolving our problems for the sake of it, but also to be able to assert our sovereignty in relation to the rest of the world. And uh, in part, how we deal with the Ethiopia crisis right now, reflects that crisis because there's an argument of whether we should turn to the United States for a solution to this crisis, whether we should turn to the the European Union to intervene. It should be the African Union. But even if it is the African Union and we are saying we want Africa first and so on, we also need respect for our own internal processes. So the way in which that, uh, let's say, the GERD crisis itself over the dam. Uh, All of these processes were internally within the African Union. If we're able to strengthen and build uh, our existing institutions and processes to be able to ensure that we are able to pursue wider regional objectives, wider regional, uh, if you will, uh, uh, targets that we want to achieve as a continent and deal with our own internal contradictions, because the contradictions are reflected not just at a national level, but even at the regional level, which is what the GERD crisis exposes. Our inability to break away from colonial agreements that Egypt and Sudan want to impose uh, in spite of the fact that we can have a regional strategy on sharing the Nile waters in a fair way. So these kinds of questions that are being posed to us today are about mm-hmm. uh, how we need to remake the social contract. Uh, for ourselves, and to be able to even see across our borders. Uh, yes. So, especially when we think about migration.
1: Yes, well, 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 indeed. I mean, what impact will the Ethiopia crisis have on the whole of Africa, which is a very geostrategic region?
2: It's an incredibly important moment right now that we're in, because you see that uh, you have an Ethiopia that's setting itself, uh, not just uh, politically, but also economically and yes. uh, as a regional power as an uh, an emerging it's described as an emerging regional powerhouse and then you have egypt which has uh went through its revolution and there was a moment of possibility of rupture in that existing uh, uh structure especially with the, the 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 kind of role that it has played as an ally of the united states uh in relation as a gateway if you will through the to the North Africa, the MENA region, uh, but also in relation to the horn. And uh, in that sense, uh, a critical ally, not only in relation to these questions, but also in relation to Palestine. So you have this important ally of the, the United States and you have an Ethiopia that is beginning to assert itself and redefine its place. And as an African country, also uh, being able to develop itself possibly in a way that changes the dynamic in a manner mm. that the United States and the EU may not always be in a position to dominate and control. Yes. And you have Eritrea that also has positioned itself so aggressively to reject uh, Africa's presence on its soil.
0: These, yes. uh,
2: in as much as there are contradictions there, they've also had an anti-imperialist position. And yes. I don't think that the United States reads these kinds of situations as... Uh, I think if I was in the position of the United States, I would be concerned uh, about any element or any force that threatens my hegemony. And I think that's something that we tend to lose sight of within the African continent and solidarity building and our understanding of more complex ways and nuanced ways of reading into the different ways certain countries are positioned. So to be able to also understand the Eritrean condition and the Eritrean situation and what's the Mm -hmm. price they have to pay by taking up this anti-imperialist position. And as Eritrea is also building this alliance with Ethiopia, It also now gives itself a wider playing field to play with in the African region and begin to expand its influence and power, which is definitely a threat to that balance of power with the United States and Egypt.
1: So is this the end then of the TPLF and uh, the ethno-nationalist constitution, whereby ethnic groups have their own homelands and their own forces?
2: That is the question, and I, 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 I. The TPLF as a committee that existed uh, in the lead up to the war. Um, yes. Right now, uh, in terms of the members, uh, what is uh, the 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 tragic fate that has befallen them? Even though they've committed high crimes, the tragic fate that has befallen them has been a very disastrous chapter for them. And yes. uh, it's a very sad ending for, for them. I think that every time one of them is arrested, every time one of them is uh, found to have passed away or to have been killed in the battlefield, uh, there, there, there's also feelings of sadness that fills the hearts of Ethiopians uh, across mm-hmm. the country. Uh, people who were known and provided some degree of uh, certain kind of leadership, whatever we may have thought of it. So it's, uh, it, it's sad. it has been a sad demise to witness. But, of course, the TPLF as a structure was a party. It had members and it had supporters mm. and cadres spread across the world. And yes. uh, ideologically also embedded itself in different forms and having its mm. own even lobbyists, well-organized structure. So yes. th- those elements are very much alive uh mm-hmm. and uh there's always a possibility of it being reconfigured but at the same time you also have other groups uh that are very much active so the where i described my kadra um genocide we know that uh there's uh the there's been evidence uh that the tplf and its uh, uh militia were directly involved in the slaughter of 700 yes. people we know that mm-hmm. But in other yeah. parts of the country, you have other forces. Uh, the Oromo sections, extremist sections of the Oromo Liberation Front uh, are being raised up as uh, potentially the ones who've committed crimes uh, mm-hmm. and yeah. continuing to commit genocide, uh, especially in Ben Shangul Gumus, where the, guards, the guard is also in that area. So the, the, these, yeah. there are different ways in which these different conflicts are also mixing in. Uh, mm. uh, and, uh, and also amplifying uh, the, the crisis in the country as a whole. So uh, the killings that have been taking place in these areas have raised concerns. We do need investigations. They've been arrests. The government has conducted arrests and all of that, uh, even in some cases of officials themselves, government officials themselves. Yet the killings mm-hmm. continue and they are so well coordinated that when the uh, EPRDF forces uh, uh, move out of a particular area you realize that killings will then take place so they are either yes. coordinating they're either informants or they're able to mobi- they're able to monitor the go- the government forces so well we don't know exactly how these things are unfolding but we do need accountability on the ground the cost of uh, actually pursuing this aggressively is something we need to see from the central government. And uh, to be able to do this is one level. That's one level where the ethno-nationalist groups are actually committing crimes on the ground. But on an ideological level, uh, what we have is a federalist mm-hmm. system that's also linked to ethnicities. You can still have federalism without the ethnic element uh, to it. So essentially redesigning the state as a whole, rebuilding it uh, from, the, yeah. say, from the bottom up. But to be able to do so uh, requires that the, the 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 it's very hard to tell because there are, there are so many the TPLF has had twenty seven years plus to be able to uh, basically yes. build constituencies in various platforms and spaces. Mm-hmm. So it will be very difficult to end the ethno nationalist period or to see its ending. But what we mm-hmm. can have is a process where we can transition our society. And and the first step has to be definitely stopping the genocide, you know, uh, yes. and, and stop criminalizing migration itself. Any Ethiopian should have the right to live anywhere in the country. There's no yes. need for one to have to come from a particular ethnic group before you can have rights in a particular area, before you can have the yes. right to go, yes. before you can have the right to exist, have pursue a livelihood. That's wrong. There's no way you can build a society that way. It's irrational. Um so that's something that needs to be dealt with. Uh, uh, so, but it requires, it's it's in, look, it's an incredibly difficult period for anyone to be in government right now. So, mm-hmm. uh, and as much as we are, there's a need to be critical of the current regime and being critical is also part of building an active and engaged civil society. It's not mm-hmm. necessarily, because we have had authoritarian regimes, we tend to have this uh, culture of, uh, being critical means we're rejecting altogether uh, yeah. and not being able to understand that one can also have nuanced ways of engaging with the state and it doesn't necessarily mean you're a supporter, you know, so we need to be able, it will take time to build that kind of society that can mm-hmm. then see itself growing out of this ethno-nationalism. Because we do need Mm. to have a critique of it. And we do need to be able to uh, build alternative visions to this. And I think what has been missing Mm -hmm. all along is that we keep looking at this from above. We keep thinking about what is Abi doing? What is the PP doing? What are these big government officials doing? But when we begin to build an active and engaged civil society, when we finally have that space to breathe, we can be able to then have alternative visions that we can then uh, build a sense of common identity and uh, different also uh, interests that we can pursue. Uh, So, uh, but with an overall objective to build an egalitarian society. And that can't be too much to
1: ask for. Dr. Hibis Kasser, Senior Researcher at the Institute of
0: African Alternatives in Cape Town, South
1: Africa. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at ALCPANAFRICANRADIO.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on these and other programs, please send an email to info at AfricanRadio.com.